This is CNN Tonight. I'm Jake Tapper, and I'm live from Ukraine. I'm going to warn you right now, much of what you are going to see this hour is graphic and can be disturbing. And that's exactly what President Volodymyr Zelensky was driving home today in his direct challenge to the world. Now that you can see what Russia did in places such as Bucha, Ukraine, what will you do, he said. Zelensky did not hold back in his first address to the United Nations Security Council since the beginning of this Russian invasion. He methodically detailed Russia's heinous atrocities, calling them the worst war crime since World War II. Then Zelensky showed them to help make the case for further action. Zelensky called for the UN to act immediately to adhere to its charter to maintain peace around the world or to not exist at all. Where is the security that the Security Council needs to guarantee? What is the purpose of our organization? Either remove Russia as an aggressor and a source of war, so it cannot block decisions about its own aggression, its own war. Or if there is no alternative and no option, then the next option would be dissolve yourself altogether. Russia, as you might remember, holds veto power as one of the five permanent members of the U.N. Security Council. But Zelensky warns it's turning its veto into essentially a license to kill. According to the United Nations, at least 1,480 civilians have been killed so far by Russians in Ukraine and close to 2,200 injured. Those are just the bodies that have been discovered so far And they're not just being found in places like Bucha. Zelensky Zelensky notes the death toll is likely even higher in other liberated towns like Borodyanka, which is also on the outskirts of Kiev. New footage shows that town has been destroyed. Meanwhile, here in Lviv, this western city has been something of a safe haven For many Ukrainians fleeing from the east and the south and the north and the center of the country, I met a number of displaced citizens today who came here from Kiev and elsewhere with their children seeking safety. That includes two women named Natalia and Maria. Maria's husband works for the police around Kiev. He stayed behind. He tells her each day on the phone about the horrors he is witnessing back home. Here's a a piece of what they wanted the world to know. The war in Ukraine is real, and it is true that people are being killed. It is very hard. It is true. We want the world to know that the Russian soldiers are making safari out of Ukrainian children. They are killing and raping women, and they are killing young men so that they won't be able to fight against them. We are very grateful to those who deliver the truth. Please do not stop. Do not get used to this war. Speak the truth. And that is why we are here to tell you that truth. Joining us now from the region, they escaped as our chief international anchor, Christiana Mampour. She is in Kiev. She was just in Kharkiv yesterday. That's to the east of Kiev, where there have reportedly been dozens of long-range missile strikes, Russian missiles, over the last day. Christiana has some new reporting on newly freed Ukrainian prisoners of war. Christiana, thanks for being with us. Your team got exclusive access to dozens of Ukrainian soldiers each with their own harrowing accounts, what can you tell us? 
Well, Jake, they came from various parts of Ukraine where they had been fighting and therefore captured. I was in Kharkiv just yesterday and for the previous 24 hours, there was quite a lot of artillery, but it seems that at least then the Russians were not trying to take the city again, but we just don't know what will happen as they move and concentrate further east. And soldiers are concerned. What happens if they get captured? We were given very brief access to a group of about 86 POWs who were released, and that happened because of the negotiations that are sporadically underway between Russia and Ukraine. And they told us what had happened to them once they were captured and they were able to talk freely upon their release here in Kyiv. Back home and free, these former Ukrainian prisoners of war, once held by Russian forces, are greeted by friends and colleagues in Kyiv. Freedom for now is the drag of a cigarette, walking on home turf, even if that means using crutches. Bags of food are handed out to the more than 80 former Ukrainian POWs released in a prisoner exchange with Russia. It's a welcome meal and a moment to decompress and reflect on what many here say was the physical and mental abuse they endured in Russian custody. One POW named Gleb says he was captured nearly a month ago while evacuating civilians. He was beaten by Russian soldiers. They hit me in the face with machine gun butts and kicked me. My front teeth were also chipped. Anya and Dasha were in the same unit. It was shelled by Russian troops, who they say tried to break them, making them shout glory to Russia, and they shaved their heads, telling them that it was for hygiene purposes. Maybe they were trying to break our spirit in some way. It was a shock, but then we're strong girls, you know. Dimitro says he was taken by Russian soldiers in Mariupol and suffered daily beatings during his captivity. They would beat us five to six times a day for nothing. They would just take us into the hallway and beat us up. It's an ordeal and it will take time to heal both mentally and physically, though many say they want to go back to their units and continue fighting. But before that, Gleb shows us a slip of paper with what he says are the phone numbers of loved ones of prisoners still held captive by the Russians. He says he will tell the families they are still alive and not to give up hope. Now, Jake, right after that conversation, they went back to their units for all sorts of care, including mental health care and perhaps further debrief. And it has emerged, according to the local uh, Ukrainian prosecutor, that of the women, there were 15 who were captured. Some of them went on to say that they had, you know, been, been forced to strip naked in front of men, forced to squat, some of them forced to recount very loudly Russian propaganda, generally humiliating stuff under interrogation. That's the latest we've learned about some in that group, the females there. Jake? And Christian, uh, there are these new images out of Mariupol that show just the massive level of destruction there. We know, of course, tens of thousands of Ukrainians remain trapped in the city. These are civilians. What more can you tell us? 
Well, I mean, looking at that, looking at those images, it's just, I mean, it's Stalingrad, isn't it? It's just absolutely awful. Uh, today I spoke to a Red Cross uh, spokesman here. They've been trying four days to get humanitarian aid in and civilians out. It has not happened yet. They've been prevented from doing it. They keep trying and they will keep trying to do it. And they have to take something into the people there who now the local authorities who remain say Mariupol is really now teetering on the brink of humanitarian catastrophe and as we know it remains very firmly in the Russian sites in order for them to build that strategic bridge between the east and the southern territories that they occupy. Jake? Thank you so much. Christiana Mampour in Kiev, Ukraine. As Ukraine demands that the world hold Russia accountable, let's get some perspective from the United States. John Negroponte is a former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. He's a former director of national intelligence under President George W. Bush. Uh, thanks for joining us, Mr. Ambassador. So we heard Ukrainian President Zelensky today challenging the United Nations body to expel Russia from the UN uh, Security Council. How likely is that to happen, do you think? And what would be the significance? I mean, it's uh, almost impossible because to expel a country from the UN, you have to have a proposal from the Security Council to the General Assembly, which would then vote on it. And obviously, the Security Council is not going to be able to muster those the uh, uh, support of uh, Russia itself. It will veto any such idea. So it's not realistic uh, as a proposal, but I think the, the point is uh, what more can be done to uh, try to discourage and deter Russia from doing what it's doing. And I think the, the sanctions approach, uh, the actions by the United States and the other willing countries, a coalition of the willing, if you will, particularly the European Union, those are the kind of things that are going to have an effect on their behavior. I think it's uh, the, the EU today, by going after uh, the, Russia's coal exports, took a good first step. But, you know, I think if uh, we're, we're thinking of this country as committing war crimes and uh, committing all kinds of heinous acts, well, then if, if that's the case, which it is, then why not uh, go after their oil exports? Uh, we shouldn't, uh, Europe shouldn't be spending several hundred million dollars a day buying uh, Russian energy exports that then simply turn around and finance their war efforts. So I think we need to concentrate in the first instance on the ways to hurt them in the immediate. Reform of the UN and changing the United Nations and the Security Council and all of that might be uh, you know, something to debate uh, later on when the dust settles, but you can't get it done now. And one last point about that, Franklin Roosevelt, when he agreed uh, to uh, have us sign up for the United Nations, he insisted, he was absolutely adamant, and so was the Congress, that we have for provision, provision for the veto in the UN Security Council. So, uh, you know, we too were insistent on that uh, to protect uh, what we thought were our essential interests. And I think Roosevelt felt that he would have not gotten the treaty ratified by the Senate if he had not uh, obtained provision for a veto. So it's important to other countries as well as the Russians. Take a listen to what we heard from UN Ambassador uh, Thomas Greenfield today, citing credible reports that thousands of Ukrainian citizens, including children, have been taken to so-called filtration camps. Reports indicate that Russian federal security agents are confiscating passports and IDs, 
taking away cell phones and separating families from one another. I do not need to spell out what these so-called filtration camps are reminiscent of. It's chilling and we cannot look away. The ambassador is also calling for Russia to be removed from the United Nations Human Rights Council. Can any tangible action against Russia come from that, though, or would that be purely symbolic? Well, I think it'd be important. It would further erode their prestige and their standing at the United Nations. I think another thing we can do uh, is to uh, try to work with some, on some of the countries that have refused or declined to condemn Russia for what it's done. I'm not talking about China. We know that China is problematic and uh, a problematic issue. But, for example, democratic India, a country that we have been uh, cultivating in recent years and talked about the Indo-Pak relationships and the the quad of uh, India, Japan, Australia, and the United States in the East Asia Pacific region, supposedly, uh, you know, a new and important strategic uh, partner. And they won't condemn the Russians. Well, that's a mistake. And I think we ought to work on other countries of that kind to try to deepen Russia's sense of isolation. But I come back to the point, I think cutting off their energy exports is probably the most effective single thing that can be done in the short term. Kita, the effort to hold Putin uh, and the military commanders responsible for these atrocities, holding them accountable is, is to get the Russian people to give him up. But, you know, we, we keep hearing just most recently overnight, Putin spinning and lying about what's going on, including spinning about his country's economic hardships. He's saying that's a result of a global food shortage, not because of Western sanctions. Is there any way that the Western world can pierce Putin's propaganda bubble, especially given how popular he is at home, which seems to only be increasing? Well, I think in part by inflicting uh, military pain and economic pain on on them, the body bags, the number of people who've been killed, uh, they can, uh, uh, you know, uh, you remember Lincoln saying about you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool them all the time. And I think that as these uh, deaths and casualties go up, the losses go up, the economic pain increases, I think the word's going to get around and people are going to have a view. Uh, what exactly can change the internal situation uh, in Russia? I'm, I'm not certain. Uh, could it be the military who will just find it harder and harder to carry out uh, some of his orders? Or will it be the economic uh, and uh, uh, the casualties, uh, that pain that, that will cause him to change his mind? I think at some point, I'm not sure he can bear this uh, kind of uh, cost indefinitely, and uh, at some point, uh, things we might see a change take place. But I, I, I see no alternative to persisting uh, at this particular point in time. Ambassador John Negroponte, thank you so much for your time tonight. We really appreciate it. You heard the plea from one of those displaced Ukrainians with whom I spoke uh, earlier in the show, asking those who deliver the truth about this war, please don't stop. We're going to bring in two of our greatest truth-tellers ahead who have witnessed the horrors of this war up close while bringing us the truth. Fred Pleitkin and Matthew Chance bring us more facts to debunk some of the ugly fiction about this Russian invasion. That's next. 
We're back live from Lviv, Ukraine. Here, the reality of the war is as undeniable as the air raid sirens that serve as a regular reminder of the devastation that could be just over the horizon or in the next town or about to fall from the sky. In just a few days here, I've seen the fear and uncertainty and sorrow of moms desperately trying to get their kids to safety. Yet, even as our correspondents bring the truth to you, the facts that they see with their own eyes, and to the world, the Kremlin continues to feed its citizens and everyone else lies. Nobody is going to attack the people of Ukraine. I will stress. Read what Putin said. No strikes on civilian infrastructure. Our Fred Flykin is witnessing the truth while Matthew Chance covers the lies being fed to the Russian people by the Kremlin. Uh, thanks for joining us. Fred, you were in uh, Borodyanka today. Uh, what did you see there? What are the facts in this town that had been held by Russian troops for nearly a month? Well, the facts are, are attacks on civilian infrastructure on a large scale in Borodyanka, but also in other places as well. In fact, uh, Jake, one of the things that we did today is we drove from Kiev all the way to Borodyanka, which is about, say, about 70 uh, kilometers. That's uh, you know, about 50 miles. And every single town that we went through, we saw the same exact picture destroyed houses, uh, destroyed infrastructure of other nature. You see some of the pictures here that we filmed in Borodyanka earlier today with entire apartment blocks flattened in that area. The other thing that you also see as well is a lot of destroyed Russian tanks. So there's essentially two narratives that I think are becoming crystal clear uh, as this war drags on. And one of them is the fact that the Russians got beaten badly by the Ukrainian military. You see some destroyed Ukrainian uh, uh, Russian uh, military vehicles right there. Uh, and in many cases got beaten very, very badly. And then the fact that many civilians uh, were harmed in all of this. And that's something that I think you're going to see a lot more of uh, in the coming days. So Russia, certainly at least here around the Kiev area, has lost at least the battles here. And in the, in the meantime, they've also caused a lot of harms to civilians as well, Jake. And Matt, you've walked through the remains of family homes uh, after they were hit by Russian airstrikes. How does the Kremlin explain attacks on civilians that are so clearly, obviously happening? Well, I mean, look, I mean, what what the Kremlin does is adopt a strategy, Jake, that we've seen it adopt whenever it's accused of malign activity, you know, for the past several years, whether it's the meddling in American elections, whether it's the poisoning of opponents and the killing of dissidents, you know, it adopts this strategy of of categorical denial. It's simply flatly... through every channel it has available to it and every platform, says this is not true, this did not happen, you were wrong. And it's exactly that strategy they're using when it comes to the the, the killings uh, of civilians in in Butcher. It's saying that this is a staged attack. It's saying that this must have happened after uh, Russian troops uh, withdrew from from the town north of the Ukrainian capital. And even the photographic evidence, the satellite photographs uh, and and, and the video drone reports that, that indicate that cannot be the case, that's not enough. Uh, to uh, sort of unseat uh, the uh, the um, you know the the officials in, in Russia and its and its propaganda machine, um, they're just continuing to insist that this was something they did not do, and it is simply 
you know, a faked um, episode. And Fred, that's exactly what happened in Bucha, which you witnessed firsthand. Yeah, that's exactly what happened and, and what is continuing uh, to happen with some of the things uh, that you know Russian officials are saying. We heard Sergei Lavrov, we heard the Russian ambassador to the UN, but quite frankly, on the ground there, we witnessed uh, what, what really happened. We saw the aftermath of what really happened. You know, we were brought down into a basement that the Ukrainians say was used as an execution chamber where we saw five dead bodies. And it was absolutely clear that the compound that this basement was in had been used as a Russian military base while they occupied that area. There were Russian shooting positions there. There were Russian uh, military meals there. There were Russian maps there. Everything was there. And it was clear that those bodies had been laying there for a while, namely before the Ukrainians had taken that territory back. And that's something that, that again, that we've seen in various places as we've been moving around this area. In fact, just today, uh, we were uh, with a group of, of people who unfortunately have to collect these bodies. And we saw a, a person who was gunned down on a bicycle, a body burned beyond recognition, someone who was still stuck in their car after having been shot while trying to escape uh, from, from Russian forces while they were still in control of that area. And the people had, you know, the, the body collectors had to pry him out of that vehicle. It's something that's happening on a large scale here. And you know, when you speak to the Ukrainian authorities, you speak to the Ukrainian people uh, who are in these towns, they say that the soldiers from the Russian Federation who were there acted in utter disrespect of the Ukrainian state. We saw them deface some buildings here and paint the V that they use here in this area, the Russians did, uh, for the, for, to, to identify their military vehicles and paint that over Ukrainian flags to show that they were in charge and also deep disrespect for Ukrainian civilians, as we saw, for instance, in Bucha, but in so many other places in this area as well, Jake. Fred Plantkin, Matthew Chance, thanks to both of you. Appreciate your time this evening. For all of the Kremlin's bogus claims about directing its fury at just military targets, take a look. A Russian strike on a children's hospital. Those are ambulances uh, getting shelled. No one on earth would mistake them for tanks. I'll bring in a member of the Ukrainian parliament whose family is among the millions living in fear. That's next. Disturbing new evidence of attacks on hospitals and on medical workers in Ukraine. This video released by military officials in Ukraine appears to show a bombing outside a children's hospital in Mykolaiv on Monday. Two parked ambulance hit in the blast. Ukrainian officials say Russian forces are behind the attacks. Doctors Without Borders says four of its team members were wounded as they tried to enter an oncology hospital, a cancer hospital in Mykolaiv. The group says several explosions went off near their team, who witnessed at least one body and several injured as they ran for cover. I'm joined tonight by a member of the Ukrainian parliament, Andrei Osadchuk. He's in Kiev. Um, thank you so much for joining us. You evacuated your three daughters, your wife and your mom from Kiev when the conflict started. How are you doing? How is your family holding up? Yeah, good evening. Uh, thank you very much for having me here. Yes, I was uh, lucky to take my family out of Kyiv on the fourth, I think, day uh, of bombarding uh, of the city. It was challenging for us, like for anybody else. So it was very difficult journey from Kyiv first to Lviv. It took us, I think, 27 hours in a normal life. It takes seven as maximum, uh, but it was 27 hours journey to Lviv. And then uh, I was able to move uh, daughters uh, out of Ukraine. Uh, to the safe place. Uh, now uh, they, like uh, millions of other Ukrainians, 
somewhere in Europe. So some good people in France uh, give them hospitality, so they have uh, accommodation in France, by the way, free of charge. Uh, and that's a good example of how uh, many of families in Europe are helping Ukrainians, uh, showing that uh, we are one big European family. You've been bringing attention to the Ukrainian children who could not make it out. What are you hearing from families who have not been able to evacuate? Uh, we all shall understand the big picture uh, of uh, humanitarian drama in Ukraine. Uh, because, yes, almost 4 million Ukrainians left uh, the, the country and uh, everyone shall understand that it is mostly women with kids and babies and uh, older people because all men are in Ukraine. Uh, but uh, yes, uh, millions of others of uh, women and kids, uh, they are still inside of the country. I would remind everyone that Ukraine is a 40 million huge country in the center of uh, Europe. And uh, millions is under the risk. Yes, we defeat uh, Russians uh, next to Kiev. We defeat Russians in the north and northeast. Uh, but uh, we still uh, have no clue what is happening in the hundreds and dozens of uh, villages and cities in the south and uh, in the east. And after everything, uh, what we saw in Bucha, Irpin, Boryanka and other small cities around Kyiv, uh, all this uh, massacre and all this nightmare, we are absolutely sure that the same pictures will be in all other temporary occupied uh, towns and villages of Ukraine. And uh, yes, uh, kids in particular and women are on a huge risk because for one side, we have a lot of reports on the killed uh, kids and babies from another side. We know for sure that rapes is one of the weapon of Russian army. Uh, myself as a member of the law enforcement committee of the parliament, we're separately dealing with the rapes now uh, because uh, for the last uh, week, uh, we've got so many reports on uh, cruelty against uh, women and girls. What's your message for the Russian people, so many of whom don't believe these images are real? They're being told by Sergei Lavrov and Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin and propagandists and allies that those propagandists have all over the world. They're being told this isn't real. What's your message to them? First of all, I would like uh, uh, the civilized world to understand what's going on. If you look back to the history of uh, modern Russia and to the history of the Soviet Union, all their internal and external policies were always built on lies. They were lying everywhere, every time, to their partners, to their friends, uh, to their competitors, uh, to their own people, uh, Russian leaders. They were lying to themselves. So lies is their DNA. That's the problem. And again, the West is underestimate the cruelty of uh, not only Russian leadership, but of the Russian culture. And believe me, I am not overestimating this. From another side, everyone in the West shall understand one simple thing. It took Adolf Hitler just less than seven years to convert Germans into cruel Nazi before he started the Second World War in 1937. He came to power in 1933. Vladimir Putin was building fascism regime in Russia for 22 years. It was 22 years of nonstop Russian propaganda, which was blaming the West in all the sins, which was clearly anti-NATO, anti-United States. 
And unfortunately, the paramount majority of Russian citizens, they believe that Putin is right. And we see a lot of reports, the hundreds of reports from the ground from Russia, when regular citizens, they are so paranoid with all this propaganda that they continue to support everything what is happening in Ukraine. Many of them are saying that, yes, Ukraine shall be demolished. Yes, we shall stop this by uh, stopping Ukraine as a country and things like that. So, unfortunately, I do not agree with many politicians in the West and in the United States in particular, who are saying that there is a bad Putin and good Russian people. Unfortunately, 22 years of Russian propaganda, of fascist propaganda, is doing its terrible job. So that's why I call the West and I call the United States to stop talking to Russian leadership and to do our job to prove uh, war crimes and to increase sanctions on Russia. That's the only thing what they will understand. Member of Parliament Andrei Osadchuk, thank you so much for your time this evening. We really appreciate it. Is the world about to become a far more dangerous place than it already is tonight? The new warning from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff about Russia and China. Plus, how U.S. troops could step up their presence in Eastern Europe. That's next. And we're back live from Lviv, Ukraine. The scope of pain we are witnessing here is often excruciatingly personal, but the top American general today presented Congress with a wider, more troubling context. He calls the Russian invasion of Ukraine the, quote, greatest threat to peace and security in Europe and perhaps the world in more than four decades. The Joint Chiefs Chairman with this prediction for where this leaves the world. We are now facing two global powers, China and Russia, each with significant military capabilities, both who intend to fundamentally change the rules-based current global order. We are entering a world that is becoming more unstable, and the potential for significant international conflict between great powers is increasing, not decreasing. I'm joined now by retired Major General James Spider Marks. General Marks, thanks for uh, being with me. I-, I guess the first question I have is, do you agree with General Milley? I-, I do, Jake. I think what he is saying is crystal clear. Look, the Chinese, we've watched the Chinese over the course of the last couple of decades. Their military growth has been phenomenal. They have an expeditionary military, an expeditionary Navy. Their development of nukes, which they've declared they're going to increase and increase in, in terms of their fighter aircraft, um, et cetera. Uh, they have absolutely described what they want to do and are going about the business of doing it. The Russians, on the other hand, have this military development that they've been a part of over a couple of decades. It's now been exposed as being inept primarily because the leadership is inept. Um, that doesn't degrade what General Milley said in terms of the threat that exists right now. So completely in agreement that General Milley is spot on. We're at a point, a tremendous inflection point, where the United States has got to be able to stand up and create partnerships that have some robust robust capabilities with limited time for reaction, as what we're seeing um, in Europe right now. In particular, look at the Baltics. 
that's a primary concern, as we all understand. If we're not present, if we don't have great robust intelligence, if we can't see the leading indicators of what Russian kinetic activity might look like in that region, it's too late to respond. We have to have a physical presence. We have to be able to be very, very mobile, but we have to be there in certain capacities. So just just to bring our audience up to speed, um, General Milley today called for a permanent troop uh, presence in uh, of U.S. troops in these Eastern European countries that are NATO allies that sometimes have small troop presences, U.S. troops, or rotations here and there. I'm talking about Latvia, uh, Lithuania, uh, Poland. Um, but, but you agree with Milley saying that there should be bases there, U.S. bases, so to deter Russia from invading them. Yeah, in particular, I do, Jake. In particular, what's required fundamentally and what the United States, I can speak for the Army, the Army has a forward core headquarters that's in Poland. And what that means is that's a con- command and control plug. It's a portal where you have great capacity to see and decide, and then you can call forward those rapidly deployable forces as necessary. What we're seeing now is that we have little space to deal with, terrain, if you will, not unlike what the Israelis have been dealing with for 4,000 years, right? They have very little room to respond, so they have an incredibly robust intelligence capability, and they have essentially a nation under arms, Um, And so there are rules that need to be established within these various nations that get them more on a military footing, some type of conscription, some type of mandatory military presence, but also NATO membership need to be forward presence. And then you can have the discussions about what those capabilities look like. Clearly, you need to have air defense capability, you need to have some immediate defensive capabilities, and you need to have some long-range strike capabilities. And all of that is dependent upon very solid intelligence and intelligence that we can share. Thank you so much, General Marks. Good to see you, uh, as always. Amid all this horror comes so much, so many displays of humanity, so many incredible stories all over the country, including here in Lviv. We're going to take you inside a local soccer club that I visited today. That's where some civilian heroes are helping displaced strangers feel at home. That's next. We continue now with our live coverage from Ukraine, where 11 million Ukrainians and counting have been forced to leave their homes since Vladimir Putin's assault on civilians began. The United Nations says more than 4 million Ukrainians have fled this country and well over 7 million remain inside the borders, but have been forced from their homes. Internally displaced persons is what they're called. Many are finding refuge in this western city of Lviv, where I am right now. Today, my team and I visited a minor league soccer club where the owner has opened his doors to his new home team, Ukrainian families, families he desperately hopes to protect. Under the watchful eye of this lion, a local soccer team mascot, three-year-old Yana, exhausted, finally sleeps. Yana has fled Donetsk with her mother and big sister, her aunt and cousins. It is no longer safe for her there. But here in Lviv, residents like Ukrainians across the country are opening their homes and businesses to fellow citizens. Vulnerable families fleeing their homes seeking refuge 
wherever they can find it, including for this three-year-old girl and this four-year-old girl at this soccer club in Lviv. The Galician Lions are a minor league soccer club. Their fierce fighting spirit so far more successful off the field than on. Team executives say their offices, emblazoned with Lion logos, has offered a resting place for hundreds of refugee families such as this one, stopping in on their way to the border into Poland. It must be very difficult, difficult to be a mother and protect your children at a time like this when there are horrible things happening. Stop. Yes, it is both physically and psychologically difficult. Anastasia tells us she was a pharmacist's assistant before the war. Her sister-in-law, Katya, an accountant. Their husbands remain back east as their journeys likely continue soon out of the country. Now they say they are open to any job and any safe way of life for their family. I was also a bookkeeper, worked at a company. I'm also ready to take any job. We left because of our children. We left our town because we were afraid of their psychological state. We have a war there, and we were very scared. Their oldest children, 11-year-old Yegor and 9-year-old Valaria, seem sad and confused. How was the journey? It was very long, but I'm very happy now that we are in a safe place. What do you miss the most? I miss my grandmother and I would like to be back in my town because here everything looks very unfamiliar to me, unknown. It must be tough being a kid and having to go through all this. A bit. They are, after all, only 11 and 9, but they find themselves having to comfort their much younger siblings. What do you tell your little sister in the other room when she gets worried? I tell her everything is going to be fine and that it will end soon. Relatively, these children are lucky. Thousands of Ukrainians, including the nation's youngest, have been killed in Putin's brutal war. Innocent civilians murdered in their hometowns, in their homes. Many more in danger of being next. And that is what motivates soccer club owner Oleg Smalichuk. I want to change my profession. I bought a rifle. I want to become a sniper. I believe after what we have seen, what happened in Bucha, the number has increased tenfold of people like me who want to join. He wants to join the Ukrainian military, he says, and go to the front lines. I definitely want to go where I can avenge our children. Upstairs, he began to show me the sniper rifle and ammunition he purchased. And, as if we needed any more evidence of the threat the people of Ukraine find themselves under, constantly, the air raid siren went off while we were speaking. Oleg did not stop, and instead continued loading the bullets. Ready to go to war for the children under the Ukrainian flag, and under the watchful eye of the Galatian lions. The club owner also told me he thinks Germany's reluctance to completely shut off Russian gas imports is partly to blame for the ongoing war. Those, of course, will be the sanctions that Putin probably fears the most. We'll be right back. Thanks for watching. I'll be back again tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Eastern for CNN Tonight Live from Ukraine. And I will see you tomorrow afternoon on The Lead beginning at 4 p.m. Eastern. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. 
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.